0: Faye, our friends over at Rosh Review have a special deal that they're offering for um, residents out there.
1: So if you like access to Rosh Review, you and your friends can come together and get a group discount. So if you have at least seven of you and your friends and want to get this discount, you can come together and chat with Rosh email them, and you'll also get your own subscription for free.
0: All the members of your group on top of this will get free access to a new mock ABOG qualifying exam, which is 200 additional ABOG formatted questions that's set up like the actual ABOG qualifying exam. That's your written boards. That's $119 value.
1: So if you and your friends want to have access to Rosh, go ahead and go onto our website where we'll put a link and uh, you'll be able to sign up right there.
0: All right, Faye. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is this recently released CHAPS trial. And I saw on the OBG project that they've got a great summary out already.
1: Yeah. So if you want to keep up to date to all those studies that are coming out, not only at OBGYN, but also other practice changing studies and other specialties, make sure you go onto the OBG project and sign up so that you can keep up to date.
0: Fourth-year residents can get the premium project, OBG First, absolutely free. It allows you to create your own library, save resources for you to be able to access later, as well as see something like the Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas that lets you get brushed up on all those images that are going to show up on your written boards.
1: And of course, if you are a resident in general, you can get their core curriculum uh, on their website. So make sure you go ahead and go onto our website to figure out a little bit more about how to sign up for the OBG project and also how to sign up for OBG first.
0: All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Kriags over coffee. coffee. So, Faye, um, we're going to go back to our sort of landmark trial discussion, and today we're going to talk about a fun one in the Term Breach Trial. So what are our learning objectives?
1: Yeah, so today we're gonna review uh, the actual study itself, the term breach trial and its objectives. We're gonna understand why we do what we do. So we'll have a little commentary about why we recommend C-section as the mode of delivery for persistent breach presentation. And then we're gonna talk through some of the criticisms of this trial. And we'll also discuss why breach delivery might be appropriate in some settings. So Nick, start us off, you know, talk to us about the term breach trial. What's the background? What's the actual title? Cause it's not called the term breach trial. <laughs>
0: No, if anything from doing these podcasts, we've learned that these studies all have like alternative titles versus their very long actual titles yeah. and this one's no different so um the term breach trial aka planned cesarean versus planned vaginal birth for breach presentation at term a randomized multi-center trial and that is quite a mouthful i have to say mm-hmm. um, this was published in the lancet in the year 2000 um october 2000 I, to be exact Um, and it was another large collaborative group study. So this was um, actually the kind of where the name came from but was called the term breach trial collaborative group Um, the primary authors were based in canada but they had a ton of participating sites as we'll get into um, that spanned europe canada australia central and south america africa the middle east india and pakistan Um, and this study was funded by the canadian institutes of health research it's kind of like canada's nih basically
1: Mm. It sounds um, like we need to, you know, make lots of friends in other countries in order to publish in cool places
0: like The Lancet. Yeah, absolutely. I, we'll get on that <laughs> But kind of in terms of why the study was done, you know, we've covered external cephalic version as well as an approach to safe breach birth on the podcast before. Um, But in those podcasts, we said both times breach presentation affects about 3% to 4% of term pregnancies. And at the time this study was conducted, again, being published in 2000, it actually was still kind of a controversial question for a delivery approach. Cohort studies prior to the term breach trial suggested that caesarean section was potentially better. Um, but the cohorts were confounded by inclusion of pregnancies that would not really be considered for breech birth, like a footling presentation, or um, were in centers that had not really a lot of experience with breech deliveries by the participating physicians. Then there were two smaller randomized trials prior to this, um, and then a meta-analysis of those trials that didn't really find any substantial benefit to planned cesarean. Um, And so basically this big ambitious trial was carried out to determine what was truly better. Um, And actually the authors, to their credit, put in their research question it's very plainly in the text, to determine whether planned cesarean section was better than planned vaginal birth for selected fetuses in the breach presentation at term. So um, let's get into how this was done, Faye.
1: Yeah, so um, we'll break the methods section down into you know who participated, and then also what were the authors looking for. So in terms of um, the participation in this study, The enrollment for this study was between January of 1997 and April of 2000 at 120 centers in 26 countries. So basically, it was huge um, and all over the world. Those that were eligible were those that had breech presentation at or after 37 weeks. And they were either assigned to a planned cesarean section or a planned vaginal delivery after they were consented by a telephone system. So if they were assigned to the cesarean delivery group, then they had a planned C-section that was scheduled for 38 weeks or more. And if the patient presented in labor, then the C-section was performed as soon as possible. The presentation was, of course, confirmed again prior to the C-section. And if they were cephalic, then they had a vaginal birth or a vaginal delivery that was planned. For those that were assigned to the vaginal delivery group, management was expectant until spontaneous labor began, unless an indication to induce labor or a different reason for cesarean developed. The labor management protocol was standardized, and there was a lot of standards. So basically, they said that induction and amniotomy were allowed for standard OB indications. Um, Fetal heart rate monitoring um, was done either by intermittent auscultation or by continuous EFM. Augmentation with Pitocin was permitted so long as the clinician was confident that there was no evidence of cephalopelvic disproportion, quote unquote, which, um, you know, I don't know about you, Nick. I still feel like I can't always be 100% sure that there's no cephalopelvic disproportion until second stage occurs. Anyway, um, adequate labor progress in first stage was considered to be half a centimeter per hour after the onset of active labor, and in second stage was descent of the breech to the pelvic floor within two hours of full dilation and delivery being imminent within one hour of active pushing. If there were fetal heart rate abnormalities um, or a lack of progress in the labor, then a cesarean delivery was performed per usual indications. Um, anesthesia choice was left to the patient and the providers. And delivery means was recommended to have no intervention until spontaneous exit of the infant to the umbilicus and minimum intervention thereafter with no traction on the body and control delivery of the head, either using forceps or um, And I can never say this. I think it's pronounced Smelly Vite Maneuver. I basically say when you put uh, a little bit of traction and pressure on the baby's cheekbones, basically flex the head because I can never say those three names. A total breech extraction was not permitted. So basically it's the usual hands off the breech. Um, Deliveries were supposed to be attended by a quote-unquote experienced clinician defined as someone who considered themselves to be skilled and experienced at vaginal breach delivery and confirmed by their department head at their institution. Each clinician was then assigned a code number prior to study enrollment, and there was info recorded on their qualifications as well as their years of experience with a breach delivery. They had lots of labor protocol standardizations, um, it seems. So what was it, Nick, that they were actually looking for in
0: this trial? Yeah, so just like the number of standards in labor with the methods, there also were a lot of things that they were looking for. But it boils down pretty much to a primary outcome that looked at perinatal or neonatal mortality at less than 28 days of age are one or more serious neonatal morbidities and there's a whole bunch of these but some of them include like you know major birth trauma, seizures at under 24 hours of age, an apgar of less than four at five minutes, a big cord base deficit, intubation, NICU admission longer than four days um, and you know just to name a few the secondary outcomes um, were related to maternal mortality or serious maternal morbidity for up to six weeks postpartum. And again, there are a whole bunch of these as well, but some of them included a postpartum hemorrhage greater than 1500 cc's or a need for transfusion, need for DNC or hysterectomy. Um, if a vaginal delivery, presence of a cervical laceration. If a cesarean delivery, the need for a vertical incision or having a serious hysterotomy extension. Um, wound infection infections, injuries, or development of fistulas, um, and what they defined basically as other serious morbidities. So again, a whole bunch of things. They then also used multiple logistic regression analyses to basically test for interactions between demographic or baseline characteristics and the outcomes. So for instance, when they were looking at the perinatal outcome for babies, not only did they look at it for the study groups, planned cesarean versus planned breach delivery, Um, but they also looked at the interaction of those outcomes with factors such as maternal age, the parity of the patient, the type of breach presentation, um, the gestational age of the patient, whether the patient was in spontaneous labor or induced, um, whether the EFW was assessed by ultrasound or Leopold's maneuvers, etc., They also looked at each individual center's standard of care and characterized them as quote unquote usual care versus quote high standard of care environments. Um, And they did this using a pre-study survey. um, And then they also looked at maternal and perinatal mortality rate in each center's country. A high standard of care versus a usual standard of care was defined as having the ability to perform a cesarean within 10 minutes for the high standard group versus 60 minutes for the usual standard group. Having personnel available to bag mask a baby available immediately in the high standard group versus within 10 minutes for the usual standard having personnel able to intubate or provide positive pressure ventilation to a baby within 10 minutes for, again, the high standard group versus 30 minutes for the usual standard, and then having the ability to ventilate a baby for over 24 hours for the high standard of care group versus the need to transfer the baby to have that capacity for the usual standard group. Um, so again, they they tried looking at some of these things by basically the, the type of center and the country that the patient delivered in. All right. So now that we've talked about some of the ways they sliced and diced the data, Faye, let's talk through some results.
1: When we think about, you know, who was recruited, they recruited 2,088 pregnant patients um, to be randomized, which is a pretty huge number considering that, you know, if I had a breach pregnancy, I don't know if I would allow myself to be randomized to, you know, C-section versus vaginal delivery. Anyway, um, 1,043 of them were assigned to C-section, and 1,045 were assigned to vaginal delivery. And overall, the maternal outcomes were available for 1,041 for the C-section group and 1,042 for the vaginal delivery group, and neonatal outcomes were available also for similar numbers for both groups. Overall, there was very, very low loss to follow-up for both groups. The groups were also overall very similar. 50% in each group were noliparous. EFW was greater than... Three KIGs and about 66% in each group, uh, with about 60% in each group being estimated by ultrasound, and about 22% in each group um, underwent an attempted external cephalic version. of deliveries in each arm took place in a high standard of care center, and about 42% in each group presented in labor, and 23% in each group had membranes ruptured on presentation. The median gestational age at delivery was also similar, 39 weeks and 3 days for the C-section group versus 39 weeks and 6 days for the vaginal delivery group. Overall, what this meant was just that both groups were very similar overall. In the planned C-section group, 90% had a planned C-section and 10% ultimately had a vaginal delivery. And in the planned vaginal delivery group, 43% had a C-section and 56.7% had a vaginal delivery. C-sections were most commonly performed for things like fetal pelvic disproportion or abnormal progress in labor, which is about half of the patients. Um, and the other things were like things like fetal heart rate abnormality, footling breach presentation, patient request, uh, medical or OB complications, or cord prolapse. And then about 15% of the labor was induced and about 50% of the labor was augmented and only 9% had a protocol violation of labor management. So 3.6% was for prolonged labor, uh, 1.4% was for footling or uncertain presentation breach at delivery, and um, almost 3% had no experienced clinician at delivery. All right, next. So now that we've talked about the outcomes for the actual groups and how similar they were, let's talk about what they found in their primary and secondary outcomes.
0: Yeah. So with the primary outcome, again, being surrounding neonatal morbidity and mortality, there was a significantly lower risk of that in the planned cesarean group. Um, The primary outcome occurred in 17 of the 1,039 neonates in the C-section group for a 1.6% versus 52 of the 1,039 neonates or 5% in the vaginal delivery group, meaning you had a risk or a relative risk of about 0.33 or you reduced your risk of the primary outcome by about two-thirds by having a c-section versus a vaginal delivery. This observation held true in countries with low perinatal mortality rates at baseline as well as those with high perinatal mortality rates at baseline. And this difference overall lessens, but still remains statistically significant with increasing experience of the attending provider. That is that, you know, with more experience defined as kind of a newer person, someone with 10 years experience, and then someone with 20 years experience with breech birth, there was less risk of morbidity when you had more experienced personnel, but the risk of morbidity was still statistically significant. The difference also lessened but remains statistically significant when you excluded patients who had either induced or augmented labor, when you excluded patients who had deliveries without a skilled clinician, and deliveries that had footling or uncertain breech presentation. And so the bottom line, per the authors, is that there is higher perinatal morbidity with planned vaginal delivery despite even an increasingly optimal environment in sub-analyses. In terms of sort of the bigger question with these in terms of deaths in each group. There were three neonatal deaths in the cesarean group and 13 in the vaginal delivery group. One of the cesarean delivery group deaths was actually a vaginal birth with difficult delivery. So the patient had been allocated to the C-section group but ended up with a vaginal birth and had a difficult delivery there. Then the vaginal birth deaths were kind of... Um, unusual, I'll say. And it's one of the criticisms of the trial that we'll get to later, but two of the deaths occurred prior to enrollment, more than likely. And so, you no, know, may or may not have actually reflected anything to do with the birth itself. Two of the neonates were discharged from the hospital in good condition otherwise and then died later at home. Um, so again, also a question there. An additional two were suspected intrapartum demises before a C section could be started. So again in one of these "Quote unquote usual care environments where they actually know had a demise that was basically observed intrapartum and did not have time to perform a C-section to to save the baby, um, which is a scary thought to think about. Um, The reduction of perinatal morbidity was actually higher ultimately in places with lower perinatal mortality rates, despite the higher likelihood of a C-section in that vaginal delivery group in those lower." perinatal mortality countries. So uh, to say it more simply, in an area that had low baseline perinatal mortality and you had a higher likelihood to have a C-section intrapartum, the benefit of planned C-section with respect to more was actually even greater, um, which is kind of a unique observation. There were more birth traumas, seizures, hypotonia, low Apgars, cord blood acidemia, need for mechanical ventilation, and longer NICU stays in the planned vaginal delivery group. And the birth weight over 4,000 grams, just as another criticism for the trial, was more likely in the vaginal delivery group. It was about 5.8% of those births versus 3.1% in the planned C-section group. Um, And then Kind of just to quickly gloss over the secondary outcomes, the maternal things, um, the bottom line is that there were no major group differences in maternal morbidity or mortality. So Faye, let's talk a bit through impact and criticism of the trial, um, because there's a lot really to unpack in what we've just talked about. I know we've kind of glossed over some things, but we want to come back to some of the stuff we hinted at.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest impact of all of this and what we're doing now is probably pretty evident, which is for those of us who are probably just out of training or who are still in training, you know, how many planned breach deliveries have you done? right like zero yeah. no one i have not done a single planned breech delivery vaginally um and you know the one or two that i've been a part of have been on accident they came in and yep. they were complete and they pushed and had a baby and so this was absolutely a practice changing paper and has guided how we approach the patient with breech presentation at term ever since we recommend a primary c section Um, But there are some criticisms that exist of this trial. So the first thing that they talk about is the high number of patients that were randomized in labor and the questionable counseling. So about 42% in each arm were patients that were randomized in labor. So they came in and they were already laboring when they were randomized. And this begs the question about how planned each method actually was. Mm. So if you came in labor, how could you possibly have planned to have a c-section, right? You know, how much counseling or selectivity can actually be done while a patient is laboring, especially if they don't have an epidural. We can also see this in the higher rate of greater than four kilogram babies in the vaginal delivery arm, as well as only 20% in each arm who had an attempt at an ECV, because certainly I feel like I talked to all of my breech patients at 36 weeks about attempting an ECV, whether or not they have one, you know, at least I talked to them about it. The other thing was that the standard of care was not consistent in the entire study. So at the time, continuous EFM, for better or worse, in some of these centers was not standard of care. So fetal weight and the attitude of the head, which is, you know, like the degree of flexion of the head, while recorded for trial data did not have to be assessed by ultrasound. And generalizability is hard to interpret with the pooled results. So, would you take your chances on a breech delivery in Australia with a well-counseled patient with continuous, you know, fetal monitoring in a place where you can do a C-section under 10 minutes and have a highly qualified neonatal staff immediately available or in another location where you can't do a C-section even by 60 minutes, which, you know, really scared me when you first started talking about that, Nick, because I can't imagine having a cord prolapse and not being able to do a C-section for 60 minutes. The subgroup analyses by perinatal mortality rate of countries tries to answer that, but it's curious that they didn't choose to divide it up by their what they call high standard versus usual standard centers, and they instead divided it up by countries. The subsequent analysis had shown that 30% of the morbidity and mortality in the vaginal delivery group can be attributed to 6.7% of vaginal deliveries attended by no experienced provider, which also calls into question of the impact of experience, because if you have no experienced provider, then that might increase your risk of having a bad outcome. What other criticisms exist for this trial, Nick?
0: Yeah, these other criticisms were more related to how the trial was carried out from a methodological perspective. So one was the enrollment scheme. So you know, the centers would use this touch-tone kind of system to call into a centralized number and then it would basically automatically tell them planned vaginal or planned cesarean birth. But this wasn't stratified by the individual center. So basically you just called in and you got what you got and then, you know, theoretically a highly experienced obstetrician could call and end up randomized to cesarean each time. And likewise, someone with a lot of inexperience with breach could also call and randomize to vaginal delivery each time. And because there was no stratification by center, potentially there were places who had experienced providers in breach delivery that really just, you know, kind of didn't get an opportunity. To showcase that and show maybe breach delivery was safer. There also were kind of a number of protocol violations and enrollment questions. Um, so I alluded to kind of the circumstances of death for some of the infants. Um, and included in the trial were you know kind of two infants who may or who were described as likely demised prior to randomization. So again, kind of hard to know exactly like did that vaginal delivery really contribute to that demise. Um, Included initially in the trial and later excluded were actually two sets of twins, which was a protocol violation. Um, There also was a baby in the um, deaths areas with suspected anomalies, another with anencephaly, and another baby with spina bifida. Um, And so again, kind of when you look at the perinatal mortality and morbidity, you have to wonder to some degree, um, you know, if those kiddos all ended up in the vaginal delivery group, you know how how much did that color the results overall? Because um, those are some very significant things. Um, again, two of the vaginal delivery group deaths were suspected to have been prior to randomization, but were counted in the overall perinatal mortality. And again, a number of the deaths in the vaginal delivery arm may not have been related to the delivery itself. Again, a couple of the babies ended up dying at home later on and could have been attributed to something like SIDS or malnutrition and GI issues. We mentioned those anomalies. Um, And again, there's this concern about having inadequate resources or respiratory resuscitation, um, especially when there were two intrapartum demises basically waiting on the ability to do a C-section. All right, so Faye, kind of ultimately you mentioned earlier this definitely was a practice-changing paper in the sense that Again, very few of us out there have experience with planning breach birth, and you and I certainly don't. Right. Um, but what about kind of just generally speaking? Can we or should we do breach birth?
1: You know, I think ultimately, Nick, we cannot recommend breach birth. That would be irresponsible to do outright in the setting of how we practice and, you know, this paper. But I think, you know, certainly in the well-counseled, well-selected patients, in centers with experience in breech delivery, ability to perform a C-section quickly, ability to provide immediate neonatal resuscitation, it may be reasonable, though this trial doesn't totally answer that question based on problems with generalizability. And in the wake of this trial, um, there was another study called the PROMODA study that was done in France and Belgium, which was a prospective observational study allowing providers to select the mode of delivery where breach delivery was still an option or standard. Two thirds of the women were allocated to C section, but 71% of those undergoing planned vaginal breach birth were actually successful. And there was no difference in perinatal mortality or morbidity um, noted between groups in this study, suggesting that rigorous protocols and assessment by those with experience may actually make breach birth safer. I think one thing that we do have to add to this, Nick, is. The fact that, you know, in the era where we're training after this term breach trial is that we are having fewer and fewer obstetricians who are skilled at doing a planned birth delivery. Mm -hmm. And I think that is definitely going to skew future research towards, you know, potentially having worse outcomes for a planned breach delivery because, again, we just aren't learning those skills anymore. In a future trial, we'll talk about twin birth with breach extraction, and it's interesting to compare the settings of the trials and talk about the generalizability question again with that. We'll also put into our website a link to a very interesting critique of the term breach trial, and you know, in your free time, which I'm sure you have a ton of, you can go ahead and take a look at that.
0: All right. I think that covers it for today, Faye. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creugs Over Coffee.
1: So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review.
0: You can find us online on Twitter at over coffee one on Instagram and Facebook at over Coffee. Or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Send us some love and we'll send you some swag.
1: You can find show notes for this show, as well as all of our other shows, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.CreeUggsOverCoffee.com.
0: And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our previous episodes or want to say hello, email us, kreogservercoffee at gmail.com.